Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, I'm so happy you're joining us today. We are diving in deep with a beautiful human being who's been in the spiritual wellness field and industry for a long time, doing uh, transformational uh, therapy. She's a meditation teacher, a healing educator, and retreat leader, along with a hypnotherapist and a heart math facilitator, and she is the founder of the Emotional Healing System. Her name is Jana Wilson, and she's worked with thought leaders like Deepak Chopra um, and Debbie Ford, who are both real uh, gurus and leaders in uh, personal development and coaching and spiritual practices and going in deep and looking at our shadow side, our inner child, reconnecting, reparenting. Uh, some of those shadow sides of ourselves, right? Integrating them so that we can feel whole and complete. So I think you're really going to find this conversation interesting because sometimes as yoga practitioners, I find that we often practice, 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 and we're told everything is coming. But then what happens when it's not coming? What happens when we're still feeling shame, when we're still feeling wounded, when we still feel like we're not whole when we have those past traumas or hurts that really in a way we're numbing out through our spiritual practice or maybe we're putting a healing salve or balm over through yoga but deep down they're still affecting us at an unconscious level they're still dictating the choices we make they're still um, pushing us maybe forward into certain patterns in our lives, whether that's overworking, whether that's not feeling good enough, whether that's over-exercising or overeating or undereating, um, you know, turning to substances for escape. There might be many different things that are happening in our life, even our choice of partners or friends or um, are feeling like we need to isolate ourselves and not connect with people, you know, for protection or for um, safety in a way, right? That we don't want to put ourselves out there, that we're hiding away in the name of our spiritual practice or our spiritual personal development, but really it's just another way of protecting ourselves from uh, having to deal with these deeper childhood wounds. And so Jana has written this beautiful book called Wise Little One. It's a prescriptive memoir. And so in that way, it is her personal story. But within her personal story is interwoven lessons and teachings and actual practices that you can try out and uh, practice for yourself to help with your own inner healing and also reconnecting with your own inner child, your own wise little one inside. And I think this is a really important topic because until we're able to actually stop doing in a way, slow down, stop pushing, stop trying to get that next posture, stop, you know, feeling like uh, we're going to finally feel good enough. We're finally going to feel whole. We're finally going to feel complete when we reach some state of enlightenment or we, we reach a certain posture, or we finish a certain series. There's just no end to that kind of um, striving, that kind of 
running after a solution or a um, a sense of accreditation from external sources, right? We're looking for our value or our worth in, in external sources, looking for external validation, uh, people outside of us or postures outside of us or series outside of us or another meditation retreat or a longer meditation retreat to give us the sense that we're progressing, that we're finally worthy or good enough or that we're healing. But really, the healing happens in the here and now. And it happens when we slow down and we allow ourselves to feel what we're trying not to feel by doing all of the things that we keep ourselves busy doing. And when we actually allow ourselves to go there and to feel those past hurts or those past feelings that we had often as a child under the age of seven and really be with that inner child and feel what that baby, what that small girl or small boy was feeling, the pain, the loss, the shame, the sorrow, the feeling like they needed to show up in a way that they weren't even um, able to show up in yet because they were a child, but needing to maybe be a responsible person in a situation where they were supposed to be the one being looked after. There's all kinds of situations that you can tap into that come up when you actually take the time to go in deep and start to uncover them and unravel them. And it doesn't have to be a big T trauma, some kind of abuse. It can be even some of the things that maybe you needed that no one knew you needed. It can be small traumas, small um, things that that maybe too much attention or not enough attention, things that, you know, are no one's fault, but still created a pattern, a personality, um, a way of being in the world that you're still operating out of, that's still driving you at this unconscious level. And so this is a really powerful work. It's a powerful way of reconnecting with yourself and integrating um, some of those aspects of ourselves that we we don't really take the time to be with, to feel, to connect with. And so this is what our conversation with Jana is all about today. And she has a crazy, crazy intense childhood with many, many um, traumatic events and experiences happening and her book is all about how she's healed and lived through and used these wounds these scars as the place for real true healing to come in and the idea that it actually is through these past um, pains these past areas of sorrow in our life these become our biggest areas of strength when we're able to embrace them and be with them and truly integrate them into who we are today. So that's also some of the work that I do as a spiritual wellness coach, working with healers and yoga teachers and practitioners and other coaches um, to recognize that everything that they've been seeking externally through achievement, through striving, is actually everything that's already inside them. And that you are already 
deeply connected and integrated with that source of abundance and creativity and freedom and joy and peace and that loving yourself in this moment with all your imperfections uh, opens you up to the transformation you're actually looking for, to that transformation you're actually running after, that it's always with you, that it's within the moment, but it takes real courage to stop and slow down and real courage to allow yourself to go there and be with it in order to feel it, in order to transform it. So I hope you enjoy this conversation today. And if you would like to know more about the personal one-on-one coaching I do, you can head on over to my website, harmonyslater.com, and you can find out all the information there. And any information you'd like to learn about Jana Wilson today, you can find on her own website, jannawilson.com. And you'll find all this information as well in the show notes. And I look forward to connecting with you in person or online soon. Hi, and welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I am here with my co-host, Russell Case. Uh, Harmony. Hi. Um, our our guest today, yeah. uh, Jana Wilson, Yeah. Um, evidently uh, Warner Brothers heard that we were going to have her on the show today. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they reached out to us. Uh, they wanted us to plug um, the new Barbie film. Okay, right, because they're not getting enough uh, attendance at the Barbie Well, that's how you the keep theaters. making money is you pitch <laughs> everywhere you can. Right. So Warner Brothers ha- has produced a film uh uh, it's called Barbie. It was released last month. Uh, it says here, Barbie and Ken are having the time of their lives in the colorful and seemingly perfect world of Barbie land. <laughs> However, when they get a chance to go to the real world, they soon discover the joys and perils of living among humans. I found this film, we watched it together, yeah. extraordinarily Buddhist in point of view. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like they were going sure. through the four noble truths of their entire yeah, right. uh, experience. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. that point where she, you know, first she leaves the palace and and finally experiences uh, the you know old, old suffering, suffering, old age, and and death. death, and then cycles through the rest of the noble truths right after that. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was really impressive, and um, I think our guest today, yeah. Ms. Wilson. Uh, Barbie was very important to you in your in your <laughs> life, from what I read in your book, Wise Little One, which uh, you very graciously sent to us. And I've been been reading about halfway done. I made it to 1976. <laughs> it is a, a, um, a page turner, a page turner and a kettle burner. Or, or I don't know how you say that. I don't know. Um, when what do you call that book when you um, suspenseful? Pot boiler. Pot boiler. It's a pot boiler. I, when I read through it, I was, um, I recognized so many situations. It was like, yep, I've been there. Um, <laughs> my word, it was every couple of paragraphs that I would call out in the kitchen. It's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> how did you make it here? I know how I made it here. It was a lot of work. How did you? make it here out of very similar circumstances in which we grew up. Well, thank you guys for having me on the podcast. And I mean, essentially you mentioned Barbie, you started out with that. I mean, the inner child loves imagination. And so for me, my imaginary world became 
a place that not only I disassociated from the trauma that was going on around me, but I certainly um, used that fertile ground of my imagination to manifest the life that I'm living today. So I think it began very early. I do feel that um, in what I understand of soul ages, I'm a pretty advanced older soul in terms of taking on a lot of karmic debt early on in my childhood. Mm -hmm. I certainly took on a lot, contracted for a lot because I had something to give, something greater to give. And so my life from the time I was very young has really been focused on, you know, how can I make a difference in the world? I think when when kids see a lot of violence and a lot of really poor behavior when their parents uh, from their parents, um, like I did as well, I feel like that there is a point like you're like a. I just remember these moments as an eight, seven, eight, nine year old, where I looked around the room and felt, I think I'm the most mature person in this room. And these people are insane, and I'm just going to have to manage the best that I can here and survive the situation. Absolutely. That was exactly my, my thinking as well. Like, it didn't take long before I realized that the adults around me weren't adults. I mean, and I, you know, which really the gift in that was it helped me become more sovereign at a young age. It helped me, you know, really gain autonomy and, and a connection to spirit. You know, I always mm -hmm. say that the greatest gift of my trauma was this really deep connection in the truth, you know, and I talk about it in the prologue when I'm pulled out of my body and awakened. Yeah. 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 That was, a, that was an amazing moment. That was yet another moment in your childhood where your, your father had, you know, with, um, with his alcoholism and his violence had started in on your mom again and you would run out of the house because your older brother wasn't there to protect you. And then you had this deep, mystical experience in nature. I wonder if you could describe that for us, because that's such a phenomenal beginning to your story. Like, Where were you in space? Like, What was around you? What happened? How did it feel to the touch? Yeah. So prior to that experience, later in life, I watched a documentary on near-death experience. And my mom was pretty fascinated with it too, Raymond Moody's work. And, um, but so I had some kind of knowledge of a near-death experience. I'm not sure if that's what helped the process. I certainly had an inner resource of connecting to spirit. I'd had mystical experiences, a couple of them before this ever happened. But right before this happened, I don't write about it in the book because in some ways I felt like little Jana felt exploited by sharing too much. So there were things I did withhold, believe it or not. <laughs> One of them. That's, yeah. that's hard to believe, but yeah. Yeah, like because sexual abuse from a cousin. I withheld that, oh, you yeah. know. Okay. I, she was a female. I didn't really want to put that in the book. I but I had suicide ideation right before that being sure. pulled out of my body. I was really contemplating taking my mom's Valiums or aspirin or yeah. something. I was looking, I'd been searching where is she keeping things? You know, when you're living in extreme poverty and, 
and I say extreme because my mom would go into such deep depression. You know, we didn't, you know, we had food scarcity. We had family around us that had money and stuff, but my mom being too proud, I don't know what was going on, but she sure never asked for help. So, uh, you know, I just wasn't happy, but I run outside. I'm praying, wringing my hands, you know, God, please save me. And all of a sudden, I felt a lightness, kind of like this feeling of, you know, I wasn't in the body anymore. So I didn't feel heavy. I felt very light and at peace. Like when they say a peace that passes all understanding, that's the type Mm -hmm. of peace I felt. And then as soon as I started to, you know, become very aware of this, it was happened very fast. I began to kind of look around and it was as if I was nestled in the galaxy, like in star nebulas and in vapors and just in this really oasis of comfort. And then I was and I asked in my mind, like, what's happening? Where am I? And I was I could it was as if I could see my little body and I was told that is not your parents. I could hear the fighting that is not your life. And I could almost see earth. Like I could see this kind of provincial, you know, Southern little oppressed town. And I could see myself standing there, but yet I was aware of everything all around me. And I remember thinking if I'm dead, I am good. I want to stay here. Mm. And then as soon as I had that thought, I was back in my body. And I lied there and just bliss. I mean, when you have, and I've had, you know, I had one with a teacher of mine from India. I've had these experiences, even as an adult, when you get what we called in the South was slain in the spirit. Yeah. Like you're completely, you know, out. And I happened to me with my teacher, Ama, and, Mm -hmm. you know, as an adult, when those experiences happen, I think it, it's almost like an upgrade of the system or something like everything becomes different after it. Right. You see Mm -hmm. through different eyes, you perceive differently. Um, Yeah. It's, it's almost difficult not to go searching for those experiences. Right. Cause they're pretty. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, Harmony both share that, um, that, that tendency towards disassociation to kind Mm -hmm. of separate ourselves from the chaos that we grew up in which was, you know, total. And, and, but I feel like, and maybe I'm just, I'm just talking extemporaneously, but I feel like there's a, there's a way in which with a spiritual practice that you can go into that, that tendency rather than, than, Mm. you know, shy away from it and then go deeper and then explore a kind of real fecund spiritual life. Like disassociating from yourself as a way of coping. rather than like saying, "Well, I'm just going to drink and shoot up." I'm going to actually <laughs> practice meditation. Is what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I was about to answer that and say I experience that every day when I meditate. You know, I let go mm-hmm. of my physical body, my what time is it, my environment. I no longer associate with my human self. Right, I'm completely mm-hmm. gone. Right, that's. Mm-hmm what practice does for you, eventually you're able to just release and go into the field, right? The unified mm-hmm. field, the field of infinite possibilities. Yeah. You said that that's in, that's right in, um, in the prologue as well. You thanked 
your husband and with you by my side, there are infinite possibilities. Is that something that the the two of you, you, you talk about that between the two of you, that's an anchor for you? Um, my teacher, Deepak, you know, that's one of his terms. And he's been my teacher 36 years. I worked for him and trained with him. And it's just, you know, a terminology from Vedanta that, that I use a lot. Yeah. Because okay. there is infinite possibilities. I mean, we think this is solid wood, my desk, my body, right? We know from quantum physics now that nothing's solid. It appears solid right. because to our senses, right? So there is infinite possibilities out of the material world. You know, it's 99 point and 11 nines behind the 99, right? Percent mm-hmm. space. Yeah. So if we're living in mostly spaciousness, then that's infinite possibilities. It's just soon as the observer, right, we put our attention on something. And mm-hmm. let's face it, most people are putting their attention on what they don't want, what, you know, their, their, our attention, I always say, is our most valuable asset. Mm-hmm. Because that's whatever beautiful. we place it on, right, it fertilizes it. And so we want to be placing it on future potential. So when mm-hmm. I say infinite possibilities, I spend, you know, probably about 15, 20 minutes a day in the future. So I time travel, right? I go into my future. I begin to construct it. I see it. I smell it. I hear what people are saying to me. I experience it with all my five senses. Hi, buddy. We got a little visitor back there. We got a little friend back there just over your shoulder. He's going to sleep. <laughs> and, and that's how you manifest, right? We take ourselves to a future potential and experience it. And then, you know, it's, it's you know, I think it's fascinating because we really make things difficult as yeah. humans. It's kind of like we're, we're committed to the struggle, you know, give me the struggle. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. So much of what you said is bringing up many ideas of, of some questions to ask you, because I think there is, there's an interesting thing that can happen when you come from suffering or you've had these experiences of suffering and then you dive into spiritual practice without actually addressing that inner child or that, that um, wound. wounded. Yeah, that core wow. wound or, or the many core wounds that might be there. Um, how the disemboweling. And then the spiritual practice acts like maybe a band-aid or or like a um you know a diversion. Yeah. A, bi- a, bypass. a bypass. Yeah. Like and so it's it, you feel like you're you're healed or you're healing, but really you're just kind of repeating the same pattern of escape or the same pattern of fixing or suffering. Um, or perfectionism or whatever the martyrdom. Yeah. Whatever the (laughs) pattern is for you that is trying to make you feel worthy or loved because you haven't gone in deeper to actually like be with that inner child or be with that core wound and, and, and uh, integrate it into your, your presence, into yourself. Is that some of the work that you do with people or did you have that experience? And like, at what point did you kind of see like, oh, I got to go deeper? Yeah. In my early 20s, I think the birth of my daughter certainly was what catapulted me and kind of crystallized like, okay, (laughs) I don't want to, I want to be a cycle breaker. I want to, I don't want to repeat the patterns of my mom and dad. And so I had started therapy, traditional psychotherapy and, 
you know, I was in school at the time I had re-enrolled. I was taking a lot of psychology and child development. And what I kept discovering, I had a very good therapist who did a lot of hypnotherapy. And through hypnotherapy, we were able to get even in an hour to more root cause. And then, and then add on to that the spiritual component. So now I would consider myself, you know, I really practice psycho-spirituality. So I don't discount you know, spirituality, I won't work with, say, an atheist. If somebody came to me and said, you know, I have no belief, it's just all random, or whatever, I'm not the teacher for you, you know, so right. find someone else. <laughs> yeah. because, because you are God, you know, like denying that there is a God is denying that you exist. So, you know, it's just not for me. But getting to your question, the root cause you know, and not to spiritually bypass because spiritual bypassing is really big, especially in religion and a lot of the spiritual and new age communities and, you know, all yeah. just meditate over it. I, I know some really angry Buddhists, you know, that <laughs> yeah. meditate a lot, but they're not unpacking what happened to them in their core wounding. So yeah. my work is really about taking someone back as a hypnotherapist to early developmental trauma, you know, birth to seven. And then sometimes as a regressionist, I also trained with Dr. Brian Weiss, who wrote Many Lives, Many Masters. And that book, as you know, like really changed my life because that yeah. book, you're probably not there in the story yet, though. That book opened mm -hmm. me up to just this thought of what if my soul chose my parents? What if yeah. reincarnation is real? Listen, we don't know. We live in a very mysterious universe, right? Like yeah. we're on a rock flying through space at 70,000 miles an hour. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, and out of Ghosts the known universe. inhabiting a skeleton. It's pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, meat-coated skeleton suits flying through space. And yeah, um, yeah it's, you know, I, I think in traditional therapy, my husband's a physician and really looking at the Western medicine model, we see it's a sick care model mm -hmm. and we're not really addressing even in psychology and helping people understand their psyche, because let's face it, if we taught and I work with lots of psychotherapists, psychologists and psychiatrists who come to us for help because they're also very depressed, you know, they're hearing right. a lot of stories all day. There's no, they don't, they're not taught to teach people, right, mm -hmm. how to heal. They need them mm -hmm. coming back. It's the same thing model with like an attorney. You got to right. run the meter to make the money. That's so right. it's, it's a broken system, you know. And so if we can get to root cause and root causes, you know, beliefs that children form when we're little, we're all emotion. You know, mom's busy, even if it's not a terrible childhood like mine and adverse childhood experiences, I scored 10 out of 10. Let's just sure take somebody. Right. Y'all, you guys yeah. probably scored pretty high, if not 10 out of 10. Yeah. About seven or eight. Yeah. And so you, you go, um, you know, you take this model. Sorry, my dogs are getting a little excited. Mm. <laughs> that always you happens hear in the podcast. Yeah. If we have our I second guess. dog down here, they're always fighting. It's they're fun. so excited about our talking. It yeah, must be something like going the on. Energy. <laughs> Yeah, they're getting like, woo. So but what I was going to say in root cause, when we get to the root cause, we see like, I think about it like an operating system on a computer. Yeah. So, you know, it's a hard drive and the hard drive can only use certain software. Well, often people start to have an awakening and they get on a healing journey 
and they're they're getting software. They go to a meditation retreat. They go to a yoga retreat. They they read a book, whatever. And this is new software, but it's not compatible with their hardware. Mm-hmm. So eventually it falls away and nothing sticks. And this is most of the people I'm working with. I've been to therapy. I've read books. I've attended, you know, and nothing's worked. Well, it's it's because they haven't gotten to root cause. And root cause is what are you believing? What did you adopt when you were a child? As you know, I adopted I'm bad. I'm not good enough. Right. Yeah. I'm trash. That was reinforced. Yeah. So if my hardware is I'm bad, I'm not good enough, and I'm trash, of course, the filter I see the world is going to be filtered through that lens. Then I attract people, throw me away like trash, discard me. I'm not important to them. You know, anything that goes wrong, it's my fault. I'm bad. I I become a caretaker. I have codependent relationships. I mean, it just sets us up for disaster. If we had emotional intelligent classes, imagine that. In schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we only allow in the people and experiences that are reinforcing that unconscious belief about ourselves. And it's so unconscious that we're not really even aware of why this is happening outside of us because we're not aware of what's going on actually at that really deep unconscious level because it was formed at such a young age before we right. really knew what was happening. I was I was thinking um, when I was reading your book, I, I I was struck by the 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 how positive positive <laughs> this story is because it it does result in a kind of spiritual awakening and it, that there is a through line through that adverse childhood experience to a blossoming like a lotus flower in a in a pond in a in a pond of you know mucky goo and i was i was thinking about okay so my my grandmother's sister uh is is murdered by her husband in a drunken fight and she spends the next 10 years completely depressed and ignoring her children and they all grew up to be addicts and drug abusers and violent offenders themselves and incarcerated you know i i i am a coke baby and then that, but but there was this moment where, in very similar to your story, your mom was interested in very different uh, modalities of of let's call it uh, spiritual development, and so was my mom. And I was like, I was watching these these two parallels of you know trailer trash, uh, and then this development, like my mom is very interested in different stuff. And then I, I, I became a yoga teacher and it transformed my whole experience. And it all of that stuff was necessary to that narrative. And I wonder, like, I'm just like, your mom fascinates me. Like she's a kind of, like, I was thinking that moment where, you know, she was diagnosed manic depressive, which made sense to me when I finally got to it. It's like, I think this lady's struggling. Like, why is she's married to your dad, who is a, a you know, a habitual violent offender and a, and an alcoholic, but why does she stay there? Why does she leave Marvin to be with your dad, who seemed like a real nice guy until he went bad and murdered a bunch of people? And then and then, you know. 
your mom's bringing home these kind of amazing books. And I'm just kind of really fascinated by that at the same time that I'm horrified that she would, you know, make certain choices, bring a shotgun (laughs) to you and your brother's head, you know, like, like, it's just like insane, but like also resulted in, in, in you taking a very different spiritual path. Yeah, because I believe the soul's pod, we contract with one another. My contract with my mom, you know, I could I could view my mother as maybe even an enlightened being that, you know, she made a choice in this lifetime to show up in kind of deplorable ways to push me towards the light. Who knows? It's all a great mystery, right? But mm-hmm. um, certainly Dr. Simon, Deepak's partner, is a neurologist at the Chopra Center, he when I worked with him, he asked me, he's the one who really helped me illuminate. I still had wounds around my mother going in hospitals and having electroconvulsive therapy yeah. and um, the electroconvulsive therapy because of Hollywood and everything. It's just seen as such a, you know, Oh my God, crazy one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Right. And so I would literally shake internally, like, you know, memory without, um, emotional charge is wisdom. Well, I was still having a lot of emotional charge. I hadn't extracted the wisdom and it was still very painful. And so he said, how would your mom behave when she came home? Because electroshock treatment is still done, Jana, today. It helps rewire people's brains that are clinically depressed. And he's like, your mother's brain was being rewired. There had to be something positive from it. And I Mm. began to put two and two together. I was like, oh, That's during the time we would read the Bible from front to cover and have studies, or she would bring a book from Raymond Moody or, or um, Edgar Cayce or astrology, or, you know, she brought a, 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 I started meditating when I was like seven or eight, because she had that first stint in the hospital. Somebody gave her a 33 vinyl album of meditation. And so it was really... Yeah. So she would go into these altered states. He said her brain would get rewired. But of course, if she couldn't sustain it with the environment, she went back to the same environment. She would. And and my mom, you know, humans are complicated and it's not so black and white. Right. It's mm-hmm. like mom, mom loved fiercely. Like my, I'm a heart math facilitator as nice. a high in high school. My mom would take us heart to heart, left side to left side we would have to breathe till we got coherent and she would do this. My brother and I, if we fought or with her and she would say, just close your eyes and feel the love. So we would start to entrain in this field, this coherent field of love. I mean, she had, you know, I, I, she was an amazing, even in her last year, which was last year, here's his late stage Alzheimer's. She's dying, Mm. you know, never forgot me or my brother never always knew that she would say you belong to me or she would um she would sing you are my sunshine oh yeah which was a big thing throughout my life that she would sing to me and you know i laid in her arms on her deathbed and we watched old westerns and (laughs) I said goodbye to her and the book couldn't really get written. And so I had a lot of healing. There was another whole layer of healing with my mom and my brother who I kept trying to codependently rescue, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I kept trying to 
he became a drug addict and, you know, he got off of it, meth, but, you know, it was tough in the early 2000s and she turned on me, he turned on me. I was doing everything, but I was still abandoning little Jana trying to save my mom and brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so, it brings up such a powerful um, example, I think, too, because even with all of the work that you'd already done on yeah. yourself and the healing and it's still – there's still like deeper – aspects of ourselves, right? Deeper wounds, deeper healing that we have to, yeah, go to. And and life gives us the, the situations, the circumstances, the people that, that we need to have in order to facilitate that healing. But we also have to be open to seeing that there's deeper things within ourselves that we need to be with and, and look at and integrate and and explore, right? Yeah. Some of my darkest shadows were embracing, I'm crazy like my mom or, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm my dad, you know, he, he, he never worked. Honestly, he, he was a, um, con. I remember doing shadow work with, I trained with Debbie Ford and I would do, you know, I'm a con just like my dad, Mm -hmm. you know, all the things that we deplore about our parents. I mean, you know, we it, let's yeah. face it, every quality that exists on the planet has a potential to exist within us. For us to deny that and say, I'm not that, a pedophile or a murderer, we all have yeah. the potential to be anything and everything, right? Mm-hmm. Given this, a yeah. circumstance. So compassion comes, I think, when you just embrace it, right? You totally, totally. Yeah. I, w- I was having this conversation in, in counseling one day and I was, you know, recounting for the hundredth time, my family's story. And I always kind of carry with it a kind of sense of pride, mm. you know, and I was talking about them, you know, being professional drug dealers. And, you know, my mom knew Ken Casey um, back in the, in the Chicago in the sixties. And, and, you know, he had been over to the house and he was, she'd always described him as just one of the filthiest people she'd ever met. And who is that? The guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, okay. And um and I you know, they and they both were incarcerated and I had pride in that story, the glamorousness of it. And I was and I was reading, you know, the the second chapter in your book about how your father was a professional Elvis impersonator. You'd grown up and been conceived in Vegas and they had had this wild time incredibly glamorous and but i think like with elvis himself it kind of destroyed them and it i i think that that was the same for my parents all that the the glamour and the the excitement destroyed their lives though they still kind of managed to muddle through to this day i i was just i was just really entranced by that by that um that piece of of your of of your father's development and the arc of his story and bizarrely ended up with Elvis inviting you up to 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 be in 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 his suite with him 
And I thought that was an amazing moment in your life where you couldn't actually go up there because you had peed your pants during this concert <laughs> and you were too embarrassed to get out of the car because you were like stained with urine. And I was like, that is the most beautiful moment that I'd read so far in the book. It was what a, it's, a, it's an incredible story. It really is. I mean, and you, you're probably not there yet, but later you'll find out our trailer got burnt down. So my tickets, the scarf, everything got burned. <gasps> no, you know, he gave you he a gave scarf. A, oh. He gave us a black, a blue silk scarf. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't go up there because he died a few years later, and he was a demigod, of course, in our life and the lives yeah. of many in the world, but um, certainly for us. I wonder, too, if I didn't manifest that because I spent a lot of time, again, in my imaginary world imagining, you know, my dad looked a lot like him, you know, the hair mm -hmm. push over and the just that yeah. kind of like curled up lip and he yeah. didn't seem like swagger. him and, yeah, a lot of swagger, like really very Southern and, you know, um, and dad, you know, the story on Vegas and hearing it throughout my life, of course, you know, glamorized Vegas. I love Vegas. I still like to go. My husband and I go a lot for our anniversary. We're going soon yeah. in a couple of weeks. But, you know, Vegas to me showed the potential that here's a couple they're beautiful. They've got their whole life in front of them. They could have done anything. Mom was a bookworm. My mom didn't mm -hmm. drink mm -hmm. and my mom didn't do any drugs or anything. I mean, she was a goody two shoes. Um, her mental illness, the time that you mentioned around the gun incident, she was in a blackout. You'll find mm -hmm. that information out later when she, when I confront her as an adult about that mm -hmm. incident. Mm -hmm. I yeah. didn't know it at the time. Of course, I was just a child, but she was on Valium and drank and she never drank. So mm -hmm. she wasn't really aware of what she was doing, um, mm -hmm. you know, but it was still pretty traumatic. And Marvin, you mentioned him. So Marvin and I still stay in touch. He is oh, life. He's in not prison. in prison. Yeah, he's life in prison in Florida. Oh, he's still in prison. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, life. <laughs> and um, he, I think it was around 1996, I connected with him, and he was a meditation teacher. He was teaching meditation in the prison. It was certainly his karma to be in prison. He is a beacon wow. of light to a lot of prisoners. He's a very intelligent man. Yeah. He just, you know, made some bad choices. I was so surprised to see that you that the you intimated that it was your mom's influence on him that made him go go south. And I was like, wow, that's a he murdered a couple of people. That's a lot to put on on your mom. The first one. So he leaves the house in yeah. a very, you know, um, emotionally distraught state. Yeah, yeah. And goes to a bar. He's a big guy, six five. Wow. He's like 200 oh. and something pounds. He's a big man. And so a lot of times men would like, you would think they would leave him alone, but they would try but to they get don't. him. Yeah. Fight. And he was very calm and quiet. And I guess, you know, he's in a state of, you know, sadness. He goes out to his car, he gets a, he gets a club and he hits the guy and knocks the guy out and the guy dies. Yeah. So it was involuntary or it was 
something voluntarily manslaughter. Right. Yeah. He got out of that after six years, but prison made him an inmate, a, 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 made him a criminal, I think. A recidivist. Yeah. 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 So tell us a little bit more about how you your journey kind of took this because it sounds to me, I mean, you studied with these beautiful teachers, you know, Ama, it sounds like you went to India to be with Ama, maybe, or Ama maybe that was here, in the so States. Okay. Ashram here. Yeah. Yeah. But you've traveled to India and you've dove into meditation and yoga and spiritual practices. Was that, but it also sounds like you had a daughter quite young and you were in school and training to be a hypnotherapist and psychology. And so tell us a little bit about your journey, how you ended up being. How does this possibly yeah. happen? <laughs> yeah. Who you are today. So my 20s, I'm working really hard, you know, I'm breaking the cycle, confronting the past, confronting my mother, um, really delved into Course in Miracles and um, metaphysics mm-hmm. through Unity Church. My minister at Unity Churches who taught me about false beliefs. So I was really just, that was my only focus. When I say only, like I raised my daughter, I went to work. I would go to sleep at night with Walkman, headset on, with cassettes telling me I am good. I am lovable. Mm. I am deserving. I just rewire, rewire, rewire. So I was very focused on that. And, and of course, then the mentors and people would show up in my life. One was a man named William Wall. And, you know, I just had these wise elderly people that would show up and present me a book or, you know, do something that would kind of be my next morsel on the path. Then once I married my ex-husband, um, really as an attempt, I wasn't even in love with him to really do things differently for my daughter, put her needs first. I had been a single mom for seven years. It wasn't working out well for me. I was struggling. And so I made a decision to marry someone really out of, you know, out of probably again, a karmic contract because he and I are still very close to this day. Um, I love him very much like family, but it just wasn't that romantic connection. Mm-hmm. And, but it provided me the ability, he and I became very successful in business together and we built a, you know, a nice little empire and I gave me the ability to afford to be able to go do all these things. So in my thirties, around 33, I just started to dive into, you know, getting certifications, you know, doing all the work. And then by the time I'm 36, I meet Debbie Ford and I ended up leaving Florida, moved to California for a while, worked with her. My ex-husband was partners with her. And then I ended up at the Chopra Center. Deepak had been my teacher all along, those teachings. I want to even point to Deepak. It's just the teachings of Vedanta, which Mm -hmm. really was like, I'm home. Like this non-dualism was my path, right? Like it was like, oh. I'm home. And so um, like what the glaciers say, we suffer because we don't know the nature of true reality. And Patanjali, the creator of the Yoga Sutra said, you know, that is the most important thing more than the other. Y'all talked about Buddhism. Buddhism was birthed out of the Vedas, right? It was, mm-hmm. So it's, you know, there's five glaciers. You don't know the nature of true reality. You identify with your false sense of self, your ego, right? Mm-hmm. You're attached you have aversions and you fear death. The most important is you don't know who you are. And I feel like when we don't know who we are, we go into existential crisis, whether that's, 
what we're seeing in the world today where people don't know who they are. They don't they don't yeah. know what to identify with. Today is different than tomorrow because they don't know their God. They don't know that they are not, you know, like Rumi said, you're not just a drop in the ocean. You're the entire ocean in the drop. Yeah. Yeah, so beautiful. And I I love, uh, I mean, some people might not know about Debbie Ford or who Debbie Ford is, but she's like a powerhouse in <laughs> shadow work and integrating, you know, the the darker sides of ourselves, right? Like not being afraid. What was, did she influence your, your own work around the inner child yeah. quite a bit? We've talked about spiritual bypassing. I mean, up until that point, Harmony, I would be you know, I'm doing all this work, but it was like, I kept putting pink paint over my shit or, you know, right. like, mm. yeah, <laughs> I, I wasn't really, I was still not addressing my anger of my yeah. childhood, my anger yeah. of, you know, being a victim of the things that had happened as a child. I mean, I still had in my thirties, I, you know, I, I would rage a lot and mm-hmm. I would become my father. And her work, I heard her speak at a, um, I think it was either Omega or Hay House, had an event in Miami and she came out on stage. I hadn't heard of her. And she said, hi, I'm Debbie Ford and I'm a bitch. And I was like, it's like, we're at a spiritual conference here. Like, I kind of like this though, because I am too, but I'm trying to learn how not to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She was just like, own it, you know? And I went down, I drank the Kool-Aid. You'll get nice. to the chapter on Debbie. Debbie was a complicated person, as many teachers can be when they want yeah. all the adoration. Yeah. Right? Oh, it wow. becomes toxic. Yeah. And yeah. so I share about that. I got one bad review where somebody was like, I don't think it's right. Debbie's dead and she shouldn't be able to say that. And hey, it's my experience, you know? Yeah. I was very close yeah. to her. So, yeah. Yeah. And I had to learn, right? Just like I had to. Im- you know, emancipate myself from a marriage that wasn't working from, you know, parents, from stories of who I am. Mm-hmm. I had to emancipate myself from her as well. Right. The, the teacher sometimes. Yeah, that's a powerful point. Um, because I think sometimes we go into these sort of like, you know, a rabbit hole of practice or, or um, you know, theory or it's like especially when there's a really strong personality at the at the yeah. head of it. And we, like you say, drink the Kool-Aid or we just fully like are immersed in this culture and everything we're thinking and doing and feeling is coming from this culture and it's really helping in a lot of ways. But then at a certain point, instead of it helping, it almost starts to become harmful you know, and maybe we're experiencing like guilt or shame around not, you know, doing the thing the correct way or being good enough in that correct in in that particular way or whatever is coming up. And so I think it's a really powerful point that that the tools and the people and the practices can be really helpful and to like take us to a certain point. But then at a certain point, we also might need to keep going and not get stuck there. We start to project onto those tools, the patterns that we're familiar with from childhood. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Or like old patterns come up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was a cult. It was, and there's one leader and everybody, you know, bows to that person and that person cannot be given feedback and the playing field's not level. That's a cult. 
I was in a cult and I got out of it. And I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure it's what killed her, you know, because if you don't do the work yourself and you're out teaching this work, I mean, one of the greatest, I think, gifts I get from clients is I expose, like I I can write an expose like I wrote and share all my underbelly because I've met myself. There's not anything anyone could call me that I could say, yeah, I guess so. Sometimes I could be that. Like I, you know, I've been a whore. I've been a cheater. I've been a like, you know, like I'm human. This is part of the Mm -hmm. human experience. And my intent in writing this book was to show people you have nothing to be ashamed of. It's you that's creating the narrative that makes you feel ashamed. Right. Yeah. And to your point, Harmony, going back, though, I just want to make this last point about following a teacher, right? Following the teachings. Deepak would always say, if someone's pointing to the moon, don't worship the finger. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. And so my experience with Deepak and Dr. Simon and the Chopra Center was vastly different than Mm. my experience with the Florida Institute. Mm. At the Chopra Center, there was no idol idolization. There was none of that was acceptable. If you did that, it was shot down fast. Mm. No fawning. No picture taking, no autographs, no, you know, trying to suck up to the teacher. It was no. It's like, and and you'll get to the point where I see Deepak at the airport after we had done this filming and I'm chatting with him and he's heading to Boston. I'm heading to Florida. And the coolest thing happened. I was wanting to ask this question. I want to go back to Santa Fe because I had only been here a short time. And then I moved to California to work with Debbie and then with him. But I was like, I don't want to be there anymore. I want to be back where my heart feels at home, which is here Mm. in the mountains. I felt my soul called me here. And um, and so I was going to ask him, you know, like, I feel like it's time for me to leave the Chopra Center. Like, you know, do you have any advice? Like, can you give me any before I ask the question? Before I could even articulate it, it's just in my mind. He's standing in Starbucks. I walk over to him. I said, hey, I wanted to ask you something. Now, I know he's not one to weigh in on somebody else's life or whatever, you know, so I was feeling a little nervous about asking anyway, but I, and he, he's stirring his coffee. He looks up at me, doesn't let me ask the question. And he says, Jana, we're on the same plane. And he walked away. So I go to my husband and I'm like, he knows that we're going to Florida, not Boston. Why would he say we're on the same plane? And he didn't let me ask my question. And so I sat with it and sat with it. And finally, Spirit said, he's telling you, plain, like, you're doing your work. Yeah, like, I'm not (laughs) here and you're here. We are doing it. Like, go do it. It's like he knew the question I was going to ask before I asked, which is often the case with teachers, right? You get that very close symbiotic connection and. I was in a I was in a foundation uh, that was based on a Carlsbad, and the people who were in in charge of the foundation, uh, I was I was like their gopher, um, but uh, they were very connected, and so they knew Louise Hay well, and uh, I got to meet her, and they knew Deepak really well, and I was brought to his house once for a fundraiser, and he was there in the house in his own house, of course. And um, I was I was trying to wa- I was just wondering if we had rubbed elbows at a party, 
a general Wesley Clark was there. And I was just wondering if we were there at the same time, but I don't think the, I, wasn't, yeah. I don't think the years are right. This is like more like 2012, 2011. Okay. And I just, but what I was really struck by with him is how modest he is in person that even in his own home, he didn't present like a prince or a, um, a king. He kind of was just kind of very mousy kind of, going around his home trying to to avoid being the center of attention. Yeah. And I remember being really struck by that and like, why is he so mousy in his own house? But you describing this now, just, yeah, that's a, that's a real kind of point of, of, um, oh, uh, it's a, it's insight. a insight that he, that he does not want to, be above others. He wants. Uh, he wants to be, be the on the same plane as others. It's really yeah, like one special. Time I was with him, and um, there was a teacher, and she asked him, "Could they take a picture after his talk?" And he got really agitated because we're told to, you know, like don't mess mm-hmm. with him, leave, give him space, you know, like. Mm-hmm. And of course, that you sh- shouldn't have to be told that. It should be intuitive, like right, like it. But, mm-hmm. you know, they would let us know. So this person knew that. But, you know, she went for it. So, you know, good for her. I remember thinking like, oh, gosh, wonder how that's going to go over. Because he, <laughs> you tell he was agitated. So mm-hmm. then he finishes. It was uh, Larry. India had been bombed. And Larry King calls him in the middle of this talk. And he's got to leave. And so there's kind of some chaos going on. Jumps up. He's grabbing his stuff. And he looks over at me. And he goes, Jana. Let's take a picture. Well, I had really bad hair that day. The picture's <laughs> on my website. It's the only picture I have of me and Deepak because I That's never amazing. asked because I didn't care, you know. So he's put, and he looks at that lady and he just walks off. And I thought, <laughs> oh, okay. He really made a point there. Wow. So, yeah, he's he funny like that. Yeah. And I like the, that, like, also you're, you know, pointing to the the difference. I mean, I think there is a real danger with these spiritual groups or, you know, of, of every nature and every kind, you know, whether they're every group. Yeah. Every group yeah. maybe, but of when the leader really like feels entitled to like, there's something really special about them yeah, and putting themselves up on this plateau or pedestal. Once yes. they start putting pictures of themselves up around the room. Yeah. It's a little, mm, it's, it's a little narcissistic, right? Yeah. It can really feed into Again, this it's entirely narcissistic. Yeah, this pattern, yes. which I mean, from like a very compassionate <laughs> perspective, is like not going in and doing that deeper healing, right? Not going in yeah. and addressing like the child that never got attention. Attention. Why do you yeah. need attention or, so much that you would put pictures of yourself up around the room? Yeah, or you know, mm. well, I have pictures of little Jana around the room. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think that's beautiful. Her. I keep her close because I always want to, you know, talk to myself. I even have clients like put their picture. I have mine on my screensaver of my phone. Yeah. So just always connecting with that little girl and because that's our feeling self. Right. And really loving her. Well, I wonder if you can describe the moment where you, you decided and I think it was in a moment of crisis where you decided I need to write this book. 
I think maybe yeah. you were in a moment of meditation. Maybe the crisis was when you had to leave Esalen. Maybe those are different moments. But I wonder if you can talk about where you were in life where you said, I need to write about this little Jana. You know, I started in probably like 1998. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just started to dump stories, you know, in a file. And I, when I, I had, and probably like 2008, uh, 2017, I met a ghostwriter and she mm. was like, I can help you write your book and stuff. Well, the, they're very expensive, right? It's like a dollar a word and a typical book's wow. about 70, 75,000 words. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not doing that. I said, <laughs> yeah. I've written a lot of my work. I just need like a developmental editor. And I couldn't find anybody. I just couldn't, mm. I didn't, I don't, it just timing. That's what it comes down to, like everything in life. Right. Mm-hmm. So I come out of meditation last year. It was like around February of 2022. And I heard it really clear. It's time to write the book. And, and, um, I got on the computer. I was like, okay, well then if it's time, then you make it easy. It needs yeah. to be effortless. Mm-hmm. And I found a website called Readsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y. And it's, it's out of London and it was just all these creatives for, from big five publishing houses, right? Like, and I had some connections, but it never really led me to a a really great connection with someone. I found somebody, a developmental editor who her her experience was in trauma and telling stories of trauma. And so she was the perfect fit. She was in Nashville we signed a contract, we started working together and she kept me on task, you know, like yeah. she said, it'll be done in six months. And I was like, Oh no, I can't do it in six months, you know, <laughs> but we got it finished in nine, which I figure, okay, oh. gave birth in nine months. Yeah. And it was a lot, it was a lot of, you know, I thought, Oh, this is going to be easy. I've already shared these stories. I, I'm very intimate with it, but I still had another layer of healing. Some of it would mm. come up and I would have to take, you know, space from the book and the stories for a while. I'm getting ready to go in the studio to record the audible. And, Oof. you know, yeah, so I've been practicing like, you know, saying my dad's, you know, voice and the curse words and all the things he, you know, because you've got to act you it out, right? You don't hold back in the, yeah. with, the, with the naughty words, do you? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like a whole other well, kind I, of... I uh... The one thing my dad would always say to my mom was horrible. I don't think I put that in the book either because well, the C was... word is bad enough. Yeah. That was the worst, obviously. Yeah. 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 He was, he definitely had a mouth on him. I, I don't know if you want to talk about this and we can cut this out, but I, I was left with the impression that, um, uh, your, your father not only physically abused you, but went a bit further than that. He I did. Don't know if... Later in the book, I'll bring, you, I'll circle back to that. And you have do, yeah. I, I was getting the idea that it, it wasn't normal for a daughter to be so averse to her father's presence in every situation. Well, I mean, even just, you know, sexualizing me and having me dance on tables for drunk men. I mean, yeah. that's enough, you know. Yeah. But there was definitely something more. I began to act out at a young age and... Yeah. Um, you know, so it was it was definitely pointing to something beyond my memory. I don't right. remember it. Yeah. I um still you know, today. So my mom confirmed it. 
And I had the memory and hypnotherapy. When I confronted yeah. her about the memory and hypnotherapy, she she confirmed it. She said, you know, that he would he would do changing my diapers. She would find him, you know, touching mm-hmm. me inappropriately. And and then of course I'm probably getting a message because even you know we know intergenerational trauma exists yeah. because of the rat studies, right? They've done yeah. where they've taken the rats and the babies of the rats behave the same way the parents of the rats behaved, even though they weren't shocked, you know, in those research studies. So intergenerational, definitely that that was there, but also precognitive and preconscious trauma, right? We don't talk a lot about, but you take a mother just like you had and she's on drugs. Well, of course we know that's affecting the fetus, right? You're totally being affected. But I'm what doing about 16 lines state? a day, Jenna? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. 10 pounds, 16 lines. That's a lot. Wow. Mm. Yeah. But take away any kind of substance mm-hmm. and, and the body's creating the substance, right? It's creating the, the cortisol and the adrenaline, noradrenaline is getting flooded into that growing fetus. And of course it's in a state of fight or flight. And stress mm-hmm. response mm-hmm. because it's we're sentient beings right we don't know really when the soul inhabits the body or the consciousness right inhabits the body but i would say we're conscious and i was conscious yeah. in in the womb and i didn't want to be born that's why i wrapped the cord right right mm-hmm. around my neck and breached because i you know it makes sense I never knew I did that. Yeah. Until Mm -hmm. I did hypnotherapy for me, becoming a hypnotherapist and going through hypnotherapy has been a game changer. And for clients as well, a lot of them say, (laughs) I don't have memory of childhood is if I create safety and trust and, and my voice and everything, and I can induce them and get them in a relaxed state, it pops. It's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing when they see for themselves what the child endured and the decisions the child made about themselves at certain times. I had one lady, my parents were great. They're still married. Nothing bad happened. I'm just unhappy. My husband never listens to me. My kids don't listen to me. I feel like my feelings don't matter. Okay. Go through hypnotherapy. Five years old. She's at a lake. She wants to go swimming but she's scared. They're telling her it's fine. She can't see the bottom of the lake. She's only been in a swimming pool to that point in her life. Rather than listening and honoring her, they forced her in the water. In the moment of being forced in the water at five, it's so traumatic. She thinks she's going to die. So she determines in that moment, she identifies something's happened. This is what it means, right? Mm -hmm. And her meaning was, my feelings don't matter. Mm -hmm. Well, no wonder she she doesn't think her her (laughs) husband, her feelings don't matter to anybody because at five years old, she solidified other people know better. So she was very passive aggressive, like all the personality traits of someone who doesn't really own their voice. And, you know, a lot of chakra talking like a baby a little, you know, the voice coming through and very wishy washy and not strong in her voice totally changed her life because then she was like, Oh, my feelings do matter. And I've been the one it's the, it yeah. starts with me saying my feelings, I need to learn to love and listen to myself and ch- teach other people to do it. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, radically changed her life. 
Yeah, that's amazing. What I what I love about this book that's very different from just a, a memoir is this wise little one, this book that you've made, Learning to Love and Listen to My Inner Child, is is that it's a prescriptive memoir, which is such an unusual thing to hear. <laughs> and that each chapter ends with uh this this uh little um tab where you talk about what's happening at a meta level in this in this story that you've told in this chapter. And so you'll talk, you know, like for example, just you know, opening up to a random page about Vegas in 1963. And at the end of the chapter you talk about codependency and what that does and how that affected your parents. And and so each little chapter has this beautiful little ending. Like where a lesson. A lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like an Aesop fable. There's a moral to the story. And this is what we're going to talk about now. <laughs> and then, you know, emotionally intelligent children after the chapter Soul Slap in 1977. And so it's it's really um it's really very novel and and gorgeous. How did you come up with that idea? So when I was interviewing the developmental editors, I spoke to the first one that I didn't hire and, and she said, Oh, you, you want to write prescriptive nonfiction. And I was like, what do you mean prescriptive? I've never heard that terminology. She said, well, in the industry, nonfiction self-help is prescriptive nonfiction, but you're writing a memoir that's prescriptive memoir. And I was like, mm. I've never heard that before. She goes, because you won't. It's just kind of an insider thing. Right. So I write the book and it has <laughs> on the cover, it only had a memoir. Oh, yeah. oh the oh, first beautiful. draft. Yeah. And yeah. so I went back and I added prescriptive memoir and yeah. I added 11. There's only 11. It's not every chapter where you're oh, seeing that. Yeah, okay. I added 11 and it was a download from spirit. I just, I got feedback when the book, you know, cause it takes about six months to launch a book after it's written because mm-hmm. there has to be publicity. There has to be, you know, yeah. podcasts, interviews. I did, you know, certain book article, you know, articles, things like that. Right. Like yeah. um, local news station interviewed, like, you know, there, you, you, it's like a movie, right? You don't yeah. just yeah, throw it out yeah, that's and right. You have to get out there I'm, and promote. Exactly. <laughs> Build the excitement so that when it yeah. launches, there's some kind of momentum. And I've been proud yeah. of it. It's stayed in um, new releases in the top 10 for a month in inner child self-help. So mm, that's pretty remarkable. Fantastic. One, because I'm not a celebrity. Two, because I published it myself, my company, wow. EHS, Amazing. right? Yeah. Emotional mm-hmm. healing systems. So I created a publishing, you know, subsidiary to my corporation just because. But yeah. to answer your question, thank you so much for saying that because to me, some of the feedback I got in these galleys where people, just general public librarians and things are reading the book, was I was hoping there was going to be more info for me to digest. It feel, felt mm-hmm. like one lady said, well, yeah, I see she's founder of Emotional Healing Systems. Is she just writing this to get me to go to her event? Well, yes. I have no shame in saying that. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. and then two, um, but I listened and I, I sat with it and underneath I heard, 
you know, that people are reading it and there's a desire, well, well, how can I do this? They, they aren't savvy like you and I are, they aren't yogis, they aren't on their path. So they Mm -hmm. need it clearly written out. Right. Like I felt like I did it in the chapter, but not enough. Yeah. So they needed to be spoke to. So this book, I think is a one of a kind. I don't think there's any prescriptive memoirs out there where you're going to see these little snippets of teaching because Mm -hmm. it's kind of crossing over from self-help to memoir. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I'd love to hear, tell us a little bit about the emotional healing system that you've created and developed and teach. Yeah. So in 2000, um, when I finished working with Debbie and I left the Chopra Center and I moved back to Santa Fe, I was still doing predominantly phone work. So I was trained in integrative coaching. So mm-hmm. I was doing like shadow work with clients once a week. And I got very burnout, seven years of doing, I was still doing group retreats at that time. But like, as we grow and evolve, everything else kind of evolves as well. So yeah. I, I, I said, it's time to stop and really get clear. What is my brand? Who am I? What am I doing? So I hired some really great branding expert. He had spent time in an ashram. He was very spiritual. So he was like my guy. He got me and he got (laughs) my work. And he came up with the name Emotional Healing Systems after interviewing me for a full day and working with me to really understand what do I do? I guess I kept saying something about emotional healing, emotional healing. Well, back in 2009, 2010, you know, that wasn't being Googled too much. It wasn't overused. Mm. It was keywords that were perfect. So Mm. we went with it. And within three years of doing that, my website, I mean, now it gets about, you know, 20, 25,000 hits a month. I never do ads or anything. Wow. Amazing. Just from those keywords. So we Mm. had, you know, we started a a teacher training. I've been doing that. So people who work with me who fall in love with the work, we teach them. But the system is just, you know, it's psycho spirituality. So foundations, consciousness is everything. Well, how do we expand consciousness? Y'all know meditation, right? Mm-hmm. Being in nature, you know, you know, really connecting to the divine, the divinity within. And so the spiritual foundation component, which is very to me, I'm most passionate about that. But for the average person, it's way over their head. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have every excuse, right? Why they can't yeah. meditate, why they can't. Yeah. Anyway. Because so the, it's, the mind and body are separate, they tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're also very busy. Just, we're, we're, there's, we need to, let's start from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so foundation is, is consciousness is everything. So we spend time on that, like the retreat that's coming up. We'll take them through this entire system. And private clients, of course, we do as well. We just take a deeper dive because it's just mm-hmm. us and them. But um, my husband's really into epigenetics and neuroplasticity and a lot of the science part. So I think as a physician, he really compliments that. Mm -hmm. You haven't got to the part in the book where I meet him. No, I haven't. The story, I get guided to leave Esalen, right? I'm in that meditation retreat with Sally Kempton, my teacher. She just passed away. Yeah. Bless her soul. Um, Bless her. She, Yeah. yeah, well... We, know, we don't die, right? We're just off to the next great yeah. adventure. <laughs> <laughs> 
So she, I was with her and I kept getting that hit to leave. And anyway, I get on a plane, not to give the story away, but that's how I met my husband, leaving that retreat. Yeah. That's a happy ending. Oh, it's a very happy ending. Yeah. Wait till you get there. And um, so anyway, um, the system is consciousness. Then we start to construct the psyche for someone. So they understand that they are, it's psychosynthesis. If you're familiar with it, it's parts therapy. It's I'm one person, but I have, I'm a 360 degree personality. So I have light and dark. So I incorporate shadows. So we teach and then we take them through the experience Mm -hmm. because it's not enough. Knowledge isn't enough, right? They have to have the experience for it to start to rewire the brain. So it's pretty deep. We do a lot of mirror work, like what I said to you before, you know, I'm a con just like my dad. I'm crazy. Just like my mom, it's facing a lot of the dark things we say to ourselves internally and bringing light to it. And also the light. I am divine. I'm a goddess. I'm amazing. I'm beautiful. I'm brilliant. These are harder for people to say than the dark. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it is. And then we get them to the reparenting, which is three steps, connecting to spiritual guidance, leaning into discomfort, the feelings, identifying core from wounded feelings, pain from Mm -hmm. suffering. You know, pain is can't get out of life without pain. Right. Somebody Mm -hmm. dies, you're going to grieve. But but if someone dies, say they took their life and you tell yourself a story, you were responsible for it. Then that creates suffering. Right. It's the narrative. That creates the suffering. So people learn how to extract. Is this a a feeling that's truly painful because something's happening? Or is this a feeling that's happening because I'm creating a story about something that's happened? Right. Or hasn't even happened. I mean, we're great storytellers, humans. So we create all kinds of stories. And then we kind of finish it off with... um, with we do breath work, of course, that's a big part of it. Yoga. I trained with Saul David Ray and Atma Yoga. So I do a lot of gentle and somatic movements, you know, to help people process feeling in the body. And then at the end of it, it's all envisioning. So it's, mm. you know, um, sometimes I'll do advanced meditation like Mahavakyas, where I'm taking them, you know, into like a deeper state to envision the future, to work with the field. Um, a lot of Joe Dispenza. I met Joe in 2004 at What the Bleep conference. Mm-hmm. I supported him before he wrote books or anything. So I use a, it's really a lot of Deepak's teaching too, the, the Vedic mm-hmm. teaching. Yeah. And um, is what he's teaching. And so we just using that to teach people to become supernatural. You are the creator of your life. And my husband and I are actually writing the book now. So the emotional healing system, a practical oh, guide. Yeah, to healing. And I don't know, we haven't come up with a subtitle, but we are working on it. It should be out by the end of the year or it should be finished. Amazing. Well, I just want to say again that in reading the book, I was just struck by how much we had in common. And it felt like I grew up with you. And I felt like not having no, you know, not knowing you from Adam, I still, (laughs) reading the book is like, I think, I think this might be a lost sister (laughs) or a cousin, someone who definitely is a member of my family. And it's just, it gives me enormous um, 
hope, though you you would prefer faith. I know <laughs> trust. I know you would prefer the term trust, faith yeah. rather than hope, <laughs> but it gives me enormous trust that there are, that there are other crackers out there like me who are on the same path and figuring it out. And it's really been a real pleasure to get to to get to know you and to meet you and and thank and you. thank you for sending us your book. It is a special read. And oh, thank you. That it means a lot because you're a man. Because I felt like maybe I mean my teacher David G wrote read the book and I think he gave me one of the best reviews mm-hmm. because he gets it, right? But I I've felt kind of like a lot of my male clients or men it might not be that you know, for them, my husband's like, the book's great. Like somebody's going to, yeah. you know, anybody it doesn't matter, right. you know, especially if they're conscious and they get what your intent is. But yeah. So thank yeah. you so much. I receive it and I appreciate it very much. It, it made me want to tell you every, I mean, I, I, I know I, <laughs> I, I seeded it into the conversation, but it made me want to tell you all about what happened to us? Well, your trauma. Yeah. And I, Own I want, it. Say I, uh, my trauma, I want, my story. I want Harmony to tell you her stuff too. There's great stuff we want to tell you now. But anyway, that's for you another. You can make an appointment. That's another story. But thank you. Well, I would you. love to come back on once Emotional Healing System yeah. book oh, comes that'd out. Great. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Let us know I'm so when it comes into out. everything that you said and, about your emotional healing system. And so. where can where can people find Wise Little One right now? And if Thank they wanted to have a good asking. read. Yeah, so obviously Amazon has a lion's share of book sales. So definitely Amazon. Somebody wanted a copy. I've got these really beautiful. I just got these in. I mean, memoir is not a book that you normally write like for hardcover. Yeah. But I was like, I got to have a hardcover of my book, you know. Totally. (laughs) People can go to my website, Jana Wilson, and I'll mail it to them and sign it or, you know. But Amazon is probably the best. But it is available everywhere. Local bookstores can order it. Barnes & Noble. Yeah, and that's Kindle and ebook and yeah, and then it's I have so a retreat. <laughs> I would it's like a signed yeah. copy. I want this not for resale copy signed. That's <laughs> the one I want. That's copy. the special one. <laughs> you do. <laughs> I want this not for resale signed. So we're going to come find you in Santa Fe, and we're going to get this book signed. That'd be nice. Yeah, I come to Florida. Oh yeah, is that yeah. where your retreat will be? Yeah, come. You guys can be our VIP guest. Oh, All righty. And then um, it's not anywhere near uh, Orlando, is it? Because that's. Yeah, it's about an hour and a half. We can get there. Because <laughs> oh, if people can. <laughs> Amazing. Right. People can find out about your retreats and how to work with you um, on your website as well, right? Yeah. That's the best it, place. On janawilson.com, it says work with Jana. If you click on it, it'll take you to emotionalhealingretreats.com. Wonderful. Okay. And emotionalhealingretreats.com is my main. Yeah, it's the it's time. The time is now to have a happy childhood. Oh, I love it. The time is now to have a happy childhood. <laughs> I usually have this. It's never too late, but yeah. I don't like never and too late. I'm a yeah. stickler for languaging. Yeah. And so the brain doesn't hear it. It just hears it's too late yeah. to have a happy childhood. <laughs> 
So when I was doing the website, I told my husband, I think we're going to say now is the time to have a happy yeah. child. Now, now. All the be here. Be yeah, here now. Here now. Yeah. <laughs> you I guys are it. a pleasure. Thank y'all for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the break